0: can you look bewildered uh, bro bro that's all i do i'm as mad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore so you lie to yourself to be happy there's nothing wrong with that
1: we all do it we all go a little mad sometimes come on one of you nuts has got any guts Put a smile on that face you're only as healthy as you feel listen to me listen to you but
0: what right because i have a right to be oh, and i have a voice
1: ladies and gentlemen Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin.
2: All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following Films Network. So this week, uh, to correspond with with the release of Jackie, which is, a, of course, a female biopic, we're looking at another female biopic, which is La Vie and Rose, uh, starring Marion Cotillard. And I thought... Who better to bring on for an episode about Marion Cotillard uh, than Jameson, who admitted to us last time that he would leave his wife for Marion Cotillard. <laughs> so so welcome back to the show. Uh, well, that's true. It all, it's all true. <laughs> it's, it's good that your wife I doesn't s- listen to podcasts. That's thats all I'm saying.
0: I, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I can't heavily promote the, this these episodes because if she <laughs> hears it, I'm in trouble. Yeah, it's right. If anyone she knows hears it, I'm in trouble. Yeah, don't but put I, it I on Facebook. Before,
2: That's it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I said before, I, I have a hard time being rational when it comes to Marion Cotillard. She's just, she is so tremendous. So I was really excited.
2: This this is a movie that uh, I've always wanted to see, and you gave me an excuse to watch it. Nice. All right, so before we jump into anything else, why don't you tell people about your show and, and where they can hear it?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I host a podcast called Movie Mojo Monthly with my buddy Brian, where... Uh, uh, once a month or so, we, uh, we look back on the big movies of the previous month. I also host a podcast called Real Films Podcast, where my friend Jason and I, he's a documentary filmmaker, and we discuss documentary films. Uh, this uh, new episode that just came out recently is uh, all about Santa Claus documentaries. We had a lot of fun looking at some really
2: weird Santa Claus documentaries. Um, you can find on iTunes. So, uh, before we get into the movie and the psychology and all that, do you have a couple movie recommendations for either the movie, La Vie en Rose, or our theme, which is fame? Yes. Uh, actually, when I was thinking about fame, the, there's – I mean, the,
0: it's so all-encompassing for so many different movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of flicks that deal with the, the dark side of fame and the rise and fall of many people. But uh, some of them that I really enjoy – uh, the first one is a classic, Sunset Boulevard. Mm, nice. Um, really, feels like a almost a companion piece to Lavina Rose, um, of you know the the actress who rose to fame and and uh, and had everything she wanted, and the the twilight years of her life. We we see her still kind of struggling to reclaim and cling to that that bit of fame that she had, and it's just a it's a tremendous movie. Um recently rewatched it and I was just amazed at how how well shot it was and just the the the, the way the uh the story was told and um the second one I have is a little different. <laughs> uh, it is uh uh Boogie Nights.
2: Oh uh, very different but another very good film. The yeah. story
0: of yeah Dirk Diggler Marky Mark uh, uh and his his rise from nowhere to fame, having basically one talent, and he used that one talent <laughs> for all it was worth. And again, you can't have a great story of fame without the rise and the fall. Right. Um, and uh, I, I, you know what? It's it's one of one of the few Mark Wahlberg movies that I really enjoy, and it's uh, you know mostly because of the, the cast and the director. But uh, you really get to see how how someone believes their hype and buys into their hype. And uh, it's, it's always interesting to watch someone buy their hype and get their comeuppance. And then, uh, you know, whether they, whether they uh, are able to rebound from that or not is, is always interesting to see. So Boogie Nights, that's a, a tremendous fame movie.
2: Yeah. Nice. Two excellent choices. I haven't watched Sunset Boulevard in years. That's one I definitely liked to rewatch. And of course, Boogie Nights is, I mean, it's just a modern classic and you mentioned Mark Wahlberg. And I think, <laughs> I think where Mark Wahlberg is best is when he's playing dumb. I think when yeah, you've oh, got yeah. you've got boogie nights and you've got pain and gain those are his best performances uh and I don't think that it is uh it's too much it's too much of a leap to think that you know he's not he's not stretching himself that much in a in a role <laughs> like that like just be an idiot for two hours mark okay okay, I can do yeah, that can you. <laughs> can you look bewildered yeah bro bro that's all i do (laughs) i'm not sure he can spell bewildered but he can play it that's that's definitely a thing all right awesome two great recommendations thanks for that all right so we're going to take a break i will talk about fame and then we'll bring jameson back to talk about his future wife Marion cotillard in lovey and rose greetings podcast listeners my name is peter the host of hydrate level four On my show, I invite guests to come on and we review movies from our childhood and see if they still hold up. I've reviewed movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, True Romance, Real Genius, The Mighty Ducks Trilogy, and even serious movies like A Time to Kill. We have a lot of fun and reflect back on the year and talk about even the music and other movies that came out around the time of that particular movie's release. So find me weekly at followingfilms.com on the Following Films Podcast Network. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. Today we're talking about fame. And to start off, um, I'm going to go over an article written by Diane Barth, who's an LCSW who wrote for Psychology Today. So there's two really common daydreams that people have, and it's either being rich or being famous. There's actually a psychoanalyst um, from Great Britain named Adam Phillips who explained because money is the solution to poverty, it becomes a kind of greedy symbol for anything and everything we might want. But the same thing goes for fame. It represents that thing we want and think we could attain by becoming famous. But what exactly does that fame represent? And is it realistic to think that being famous will meet that need or those needs? So we have lots of evidence that actually being famous is not all great. There's there's ups and downs. Actually, one of the best, uh, one of the things that sells the best for publications, either online or on newsstands, are these ideas that famous people are miserable, miserable too. So we we really enjoy this because it tells us what we already know: that having that fame actually brings its own problems, and those that have it aren't really any better off than we are. And yet we still, and, let, and yet many of us dream of this kind of 15 minutes of fame. So neuroscience and attachment theory, in particular, offer an explanation of what we're really looking for. So according to this research, normal human development tells us that we want to feel recognized and seen by others. So when we're infants, that's really easy to get. Adults, in a lot of ways, especially those who are parents, are programmed to respond to this kind of unblinking gaze that babies have. And they attempt to meet their child's needs for food and comfort. So we get all that as attention. But as, as children develop and their needs become harder to meet, A parent's life also becomes a lot more complicated. So other children, other adults, their own relationships, financial needs, they start to interfere with a parent's ability to completely understand and respond to their child. So even in really good home situations, kids sometimes will feel unseen at least some of the time because there's only so much time and so much attention to go around. But that lack of recognition at home is not necessarily a bad thing. It's what make, it's what drives us to look for recognition outside the family. We, there, you can call that uh, doing well in school, um, doing well in sports or weekend activities, um, having your siblings connect with one another, having your friends connect with one another. So a psychoanalyst, D.W. Winnicott, once said, quote, good enough parenting is much better than perfect because if we got all of our needs met, we would never do anything outside of that parental child relationship which would be really un unhe- really unhealthy another thing i don't think a lot of us think about when we think about how great it would be to be rich and famous but is covered a lot in movies and television shows is this this kind of like we get this hot we get this high from stardom but then once we achieve it sometimes trouble begins so there is a british kind of public relations guru named max clifford and he talked about Fame as if it was addictive. He said, The sad part about it is people that desperately need to become famous. It's like a drug. And there's so many people that come up and then they go, and when you meet them, they're desperate, desperate for it. I mean, they're living 10, 15, 20 years ago when they were famous, but they can't accept that they are no longer famous. It is an addiction, it's a craving. It varies from person to person, but it's the same as drugs or alcohol or anything else. At its worst, it totally takes over your life, your outlook on everyday life. It's tragic. The way it normally works is that somebody becomes famous, so they follow the natural path. In other words, the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger everything. Then they tend to isolate themselves from people they that actually know them and possibly care about them because they aren't there anymore. And usually what happens is they get surrounded by people who live off of them and kind of pick off of them, who say what the person wants to hear all the time. You would probably use the term yes man. Uh, and I think we see this a lot in Edith Pioff's life, at least as, as shown in Lovey and Rose. So they get wrapped up in this fame and get this weird picture of life and reality, where life just slowly becomes emptier and emptier. And then when the fame's gone, they can't deal with real life. There's a lot of people who would do anything to be famous. It becomes more important than living. So can fame really be an addiction? So there there are definitely those in academic communities who think, yes, that it can, although it's really hard to get kind of real solid empirical evidence about this. And it's interesting, if we look at fame kind of as it is now, it used to be this byproduct of talent um, in another field, like acting, singing, sports, etc. But now we live in a culture where people are just famous, famous for being famous, famous for being born into a rich family or whatever. There's actually an article about the obsession with fame on msnbc.com, and this psychologist from Beverly Hills, Bethany Marshall, said, a lot of our youth, their parents don't love them unconditionally for who they are, the fantasy of being loved just for who you are without having to do anything. And again, I think this is biased because as a person who works in Beverly Hills, which is kind of the hotbed of fame. Now, in that same article, there's an anthropologist, and he said, our minds are adapted for a small-scale society, and what's happening today is this out-of-control version of that. The lust for fame has taken on this kind of pathological form that is, and he he termed it like, like our eating habits, and it's making us obese because we're just devouring this day and night. And fame is really fleeting. Like, you can achieve fame, but there's no guarantee that you'll maintain it, especially in this world of fame for fame's sake and not because of a particular talent. So therein lies this addictive loop. So... One of the biggest concerns for celebrities who have made it is that they're going to lose it. So there's this need to replenish and get more and more and more. And just like with any other addiction, it has less to do with the item that you're getting. So the fame becomes this kind of enhancement of mood. It becomes it becomes something that is important to the person and invaluable. And without it, they feel as if they're nothing. Now, there was also a qualitative interview published by Donna Rockwell and David Giles in the Journal of Phenomenological Psychology. And they, they interviewed 15 well-known American celebrities from politics, law, writing, sports, music, film, entertainment. And they found that those interviewed felt that being famous led to, of course, a loss of privacy, a set of demanding expectations, and this symbol, symbolic kind of immortality. So the areas of psychological concern for mental health of people who are famous includes isolation and this unwillingness to give up fame. So they argue that there's actually four temporal phases in celebrity or fame. One, a period of love or hate towards the experience. Two, an addiction phase where behavior is directed solely towards the goal of remaining famous. Three, an acceptance phase which requires a permanent change in everyday life routines. And four, an adaptation phase where new behaviors are developed in response to life changes involved in being famous. And the authors of this study noted that the lure of this adoration, this fame, is really attractive. and becomes difficult for the person to imagine living without it. One participant called it somewhat of a high, and another said, I kind of get off on it. I've been addicted to almost every substance known to man at one point or another, and the most addicting of them all is fame. So where does a celebrity go when this fame passes, when they're dependent on fame? How do you adjust to being less famous over time? And there's also research uh, about whether those who are famous are actually more susceptible to developing other types of addiction. One doctor, Dr. Dale Archer, said they're definitely related. Those who are prone to addiction get a much higher high from things, whether it's food, shopping, or fame. And it means the behavior will trigger cravings. So when we get this addictive rush, basically what happens is our, our dopamine spikes. And if you talk to anyone who's a performer, they will talk about the high of performing. You're getting the same the same reaction. You're getting that dopamine spike, whether you're using a drug or whether you're performing in front of adoring crowds. And actually many people who experience that high we're talking about, they say when they're not performing, they don't feel as well. They don't feel as good about themselves. So this is all great setup for addiction. If you can't get the high 24 hours a day by performing and you can't, you may very likely turn to other substances to get that high. And I think especially that high that we're talking about, that need for performing for people, we get that a lot in the character of Edith uh, in Lovey and Rose. And we also see, and they don't focus on it a lot, but we do also see her turn to drug use. I think it's morphine in particular, and obviously alcohol. And I think the movie opens in a lot of ways with her, you know, drinking champagne and kind of stumbling all over herself. So I think it's easy to draw that comparison here that... Fame is really important to her, and really entertaining people, and that high she gets from it is really important to her, and it's shown in the movie. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. When we come back, uh, we will bring back Jameson to talk about La Vie
1: and Rose. Watched the movie? Check. Popped the popcorn? Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home? Check and double-check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, What's that, you say? What's the Broken Brain podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, Breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right,
2: so we're back. We're back to talk about talk about the movie. It's time to talk about La Vie and Rose. So you mentioned at the beginning of this that you had not seen this before, Uh, and I am in the same boat. This is I've been going on kind of a Marion Cotillard tear. I've watched like three or four of her movies recently. Uh, because I, I, it was, it was actually like when Allied came out, which, which we talked about, I was like, you know, there's all these movies that, that I had heard were good and I'm sure that are, that star her. And I just, for some reason, for one reason or another, missed them all. So I was like starting to kind of make my way through this. And then I was, you know, planning the podcast and I was like, Hey, this is a perfect opportunity to, uh, give myself an excuse to finally watch this because it is a female biopic, which there aren't that many of i started to yeah. look some up and i was like oh this is kind of there's not a lot to pick from here but this is one that i'd heard good things about so so what was your experience like the first time watching this
0: yeah i like you i had actually uh since we discussed allied i had uh kind of gone back and gone through a very similar kind of gone through and like yeah you know what? there's a lot of them that i haven't seen you know i'm I'm assuming you wouldn't rewatch Contagion, one of her great films. Oh, classic. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: really what catapulted her to stardom? Yes, obviously.
0: <laughs> um, but this is the one that won her the Academy Award. That really got her onto the American landscape. Yes. And yeah, and and when when you mentioned it, I said excellent. This is this has been on the list of mine for a while, and it's it's a little daunting because
2: it is a longer movie. It's almost two and a half hours yeah. long. I didn't and... really realize that when I planned the podcast. By the way, I put, <laughs> I put in the movie, and I was like, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> like, right. I thought I'd be here for two hours. I got to budget another twenty minutes. Okay.
0: And so in my ADD with a two and a half hour movie and subtitles, look, I have, I have no, <laughs> I'm not shy about watching foreign films, but, um, my ADD kicks in at about an hour with it. And I start picking up my phone and, and right. you can't do that. No. So, um, but I was, I was really blown away by the physicality yes. and the transformation more than anything of, uh, of Marion and, and just how she, and I started going and, and, Looking up pictures of of her character of Edith and just seeing like, wow, she really went into this role. Like they did a lot with her to make her look so small and so frail and just the whole everything about her. Really amazing, really amazing
2: work. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is something I'm looking forward to talking to you about, because I'm not convinced that it's a good movie. I'm convinced that it is a breakthrough, phenomenal performance by her but as a film I'm still not sure what I think after you know 140 minutes of of Le'Veon Rose. So I'm looking forward to talking about not only her performance but but kind of the rest of the film cuz like I, like I mentioned this is the first time I saw it and yeah, I've noticed that you know, I've, I've gotten more into foreign films lately, but it is one of those things where you, you almost feel like as an English, you're like, OK, I got to be in the mood for this. I got to be ready to focus because not only do I have to focus on, you know, the audio and the video, but I also have to read, you know, the subtitles and I have to really get into it. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. there's there can be a bit of a of a. A distance created by a foreign film because it takes I – t- I think it takes an extra 10, 15, 20 minutes for me to really get into the movie because I'm so focused on reading the words that I'm not paying as much attention to the mm-hmm. performance as I would in an, in an English-led film. So I just have to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but let's jump to the direction. So it's directed by uh, Olivier DeHaan, uh, and I looked him up on IMDb and found nothing else I recognize. So this is not someone who has jumped to prominence like Marion Cotillard did because of Lippie mm-hmm. and Rose. So what did you think of the direction here? I I thought it was
0: interesting. I mean, it's not a linear storytelling, and I thought that... I thought there were some beautiful moments in the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought that there was some really really, especially as as you get kind of later in her life, I thought that he really captured who Edith was. I thought that the first half hour of the movie, though, was a little kind of all over the place. A little?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was way and, all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was
0: so much that went unexplained to me that I had to go and look up and find out like there's, there was um, you know, she gets sent to a brothel in, mm-hmm. in the about a half hour into the movie and i don't know if maybe i missed it but i i didn't notice that that was her grandmother that was running the brothel yeah
2: that's something i had to look up too. like her father her father comes and takes her from her maternal grandmother and takes her to her paternal grandmother's house who runs Uh, a brothel And that's never really explained i mean they they have you make a definitely a couple leaps early in the film
0: I mean and that's a dynamic though that if I knew I just I assume that it was just some lady or that he frequented the brothel and so he dropped his daughter off like well I'm not going to watch her <laughs> right and you, that ch- and I, you're buddy. right
2: that changes everything like, it, there's a big difference between taking taking this child to your grandmother who happens to run a brothel or taking your child to a brothel you happen to go to and leave her with some lady. Like, that's those are two very and that's different things. that's what I
0: thought it was. I assume, like, well, la- you ladies have proven that you know how to take care of me. Maybe oh, you can take God. care of my daughter. Oh, no. You know? and that's what I am like, this is really strange. They're just caretakers. Find, oh, they're fine. fine. Oh, and, it, and it changes the dynamic between everything in the and kind of the. The weird hostility between the grandmother and, and her and, and just a lot of the dynamics. And it was afterwards when I'm reading about it, I go, oh, that's her grandma.
2: And now I'm replaying in my mind going, OK, well, this is a little different than than what I would thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you bring up a good point with this film being and I, I don't think it necessarily gets – a lot better after the first thirty minutes in terms of being scattered. It's still like they make. I don't know how much of this is script and how much of this is direction, but I think mm-hmm. the non-linear storytelling. And this is always a risk when you do non-linear storytelling. But this was just a fucking mess. Like it was just <laughs> like, wait, when are we? Where are we? What? Who's that? What's happening? Like you spend, and it makes me wonder if Edith Piaf's life is so known in France. Yeah, that that like you don't have be. to fill this in for French viewers, but for a, an American viewer, I was like constant. I felt constantly confused and and thank God for Marion Cotillard's performance to like kind of shake me out of that confusion because there's so many moments where I'm just like, oh, who cares? This is amazing because she's amazing. Uh, well, but- and you know, I mean, how many
0: times how many times was she married? Do you have any idea? No clue. No, nope, no idea. No, there's just guys yeah. come in and out of her life. Right. And you're never really told like this was a husband. She she's mourning one guy and then there's another guy shows up and the the way that they they played with the look of Edith and and aged her and and the and all this and and went back and forth in time, it was really hard to tell where she was in her life. Yeah, who was this guy? Where is she at in her career? It was. It was hard to track, and it made it a little distracting for me when I'm trying to really pay attention to it, and and I'm spending a lot of time just trying to figure out by, <laughs> the, by the, the shape of her eyebrows or the color of her hair, like, okay, so where in her life is she? Where's Gerard Depardieu now? Right. What am I doing?
2: It's like, it's a very, it shouldn't be that effortful of an experience to, <laughs> to watch a movie that's a biopic. Like, this should be pretty clear, and it's definitely not. I think that's what, I think the biggest fault of the director, and I think this is the director's job, is to create context oh, yeah. in a film and there is no context like you you don't feel like and, and I guess in a way like you could you could twist this and make this a good thing because she has no stability in her life and never has and as a viewer we feel that Like, we feel that lack of stability because we are – we're walking on uneven ground (laughs) for the entire film. Like, kind of like we said, like, I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know who that guy is. I know who she is, and that's all I got. Like, that's – so you definitely feel that throughout the movie. But there are a couple shots in the movie that I really, really enjoyed. There's – when uh, when young Edith uh, is, I think, first in the brothel, and the like, sun is streaming in on her, like just mm, a gorgeous, yes. gorgeous shot. And then there's the shot from behind her at her first kind of professional gig, where you yeah. just see kind of her silhouette and the light coming from. From kind of the front of the screen, but you don't see most of that because it's blocked by her, and it's just this stunning, beautiful shot. So there's a couple shots here and there that Olivier Dahan or or his uh, cinematographer had set up that are just really beautiful to look at. And you could tell there's a couple shots in this movie that he fell in love with and was like, "You need to look at this for an extra couple seconds." I'm really I'm really proud of this one. So so there is. It's not like it's it's done by a director who who doesn't have any skill. There are definitely a handful of shots. In here, that that will really stick with you.
0: And oddly, the pretty decent fight choreography during the boxing match in the in not the bad, of the movie. not bad. And there's <laughs> a lot of boxing
2: movies it? that don't have oh, that.
0: So, oh, way better fight choreography than in Bleed for this. I mean, way better. <laughs> I believe
2: this one way more than Miles Teller. Uh, <laughs> not what you expect when you watch Levine and Rose, but but there right, it is. Exactly. No. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing uh, I liked about the film is there's a bunch of there's a bunch of moments where the the music in it switches from live performance to recorded performance of the same song, and the transitions are just kind of wonderful. Like they they really work because they slowly kind of bleed from this very raw emotionality of this live performance. And then you you slowly understand that like, oh, this is becoming recorded. This is via radio. So there's a, there's pops and hisses. And, and the sound is really impressive in those moments. And it also serves to transition from moving from one time to another, which I really yes. liked. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think they really lucked out. You'd
0: mentioned the, the younger version of Edith. And i was actually i was fairly blown away by how how spot on this girl was. She looked like a young marion she yep. she really emoted with her eyes really well. you could see the confusion and the just the 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 f- almost fear in her eyes and just you can see in her eyes that she'd lived a long life already at this young age being tossed around being a street performer and right. nobody really wanting her. And I thought they really lucked out with her. Um, and the transition was really nice going back and forth between her and the older version of Edith. Um, and that's tough. It's tough to find a, a, a young performer like that, that is able to a look like your, your lead at an older age and then B, be able to actually act without being, uh, without being super precocious and and right. you know annoying, so I thought like that was most child like,
2: actors. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that I didn't really like from a direction point that I didn't like and didn't understand is it took me a an embarrassingly long time to figure out what happened with her her blinding when she was a child. I was like, what is? what happened yeah, like, was, like I felt like that should have been described that should have been more focused on like we're just like wait is she blind forever what is happening right now like I don't understand
0: that was very weird yeah I'm like did she did, did she get a, a what kind of disease did she have right like what's going on and then they just kind of take her the, the you know and the, the kind of adoptive mother that she had gotten while she was in the brothel the lady who decided to take take care of her and and act as the surrogate mother kind of takes her off to to pray to a a saint and then, and then we move on with the movie and she, she's fine.
2: And yeah, yeah, there was, there's a lot of moments like that where you're just like, I, you know, for a movie that's two hours and 20 minutes, you don't explain a whole hell of a lot. Like, (laughs) I mean, if you have a movie two and a half hours, like usually what happens is things are explained so much that you're like, okay, you could have cut 15 minutes off of this movie. And that's not really the case here. And I think sometimes that's the problem with biopics that, that are unfocused, it's like, well, we need to tell the entire life story. It's just because like, how do you tell, you know, a 40 or 50 year story in two hours? You know, like, so I think sometimes the better biopics are the ones that focus on a particular period of time. That's really influential in a person's life. And this tries to kind of have its cake and eat it too.
0: The the one thing though, that, I mean, we're kind of dogging on that is I do feel like that everything when you put all the pieces together, that ultimately the the character of Edith, I started to understand, I mean, she she became this diva. And you started to see that portion of her life as she she felt this need. Like all of these little things that we talked about of, of her growing up and being thrown around, it all started to add up as you see her really searching for acceptance from anyone and her willingness to just perform for anyone that she 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 never really felt like she lived for herself right and that definitely thought, does come I, through yeah yeah and i thought that you know it it wasn't told in, in a uh, in a way that was really easily accessible but ultimately when we got to the core of who edith was i think i think that at least made sense at yeah. least that part i could hold on to go okay i get this and i can kind of see how we got to this point
2: yeah absolutely all right so let's move on to uh bigger and better things let's move on to the acting in this movie let's talk about Mm -hmm. Marion Cotillard uh like I've seen her in a lot of things now and this this is certainly not her best film but I can understand why she won an Oscar for it this might be her most impressive performance what I was really struck by is in most and granted I haven't seen her entire filmography so I can't Mm -hmm. speak to everything but most of the movies I've seen her in, there's this elegance to her yes. uh, and even a little bit of distance and this kind of just old school beauty. Right. And this could not be further from that, like this performance, like this is a raw emotional uh, performance. This is a physical performance. She transforms herself uh, a number of times in this movie. And you even mentioned like the way she walks, the way she stands, the way she mm-hmm. uses her hands is so different from any other performance I've seen of hers, and I was I spent like most of the movie just gen- generally stunned by what I was seeing on screen. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is is it
0: I remember hearing when this came out that it was compared a lot to Charlize Theron in Monster and mm-hmm. how you were able to take someone who is so strikingly beautiful and classically beautiful and make her you you really kind of make her more plain and in you know. Charlize Theron's case monstrous, almost, right? You know, and and how they were able to do that, and and my affinity for for Marion, I was like, ah, can't be. I'm sure she can't do all it all shines through in the end. <laughs> it's impossible. Um, and yeah, they did from everything from you know shaving the eyebrows, giving her this look, and um, the big thing for me, yeah, was that 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 posture that she took on the hunched shoulders, the the almost oddly Crippled hands, almost. And and what was really interesting to me was I didn't realize how old uh, Edith was when she passed away. And so at different points in the movie, you see her towards the end of days, and I assumed from the look that she was in her sixties.
2: Yeah, and if
0: I minimum. Know, she was forty-seven. Yeah, forty-seven. Like this lady lived a rough existence. Yeah. <laughs> she, she lived a couple of lifetimes, um, and you know, and and they really did something with Marion and and that as far as the physical appearance as far as her acting I was really blown away by it I mean you know a lot of the movies that she's done American movies are the contagions I mean she kind of just kind of shows up and a lot of times I feel like she is used as because she is uh, foreign and French and that she is kind of used like she was an inception almost it's like she has almost this ethereal right type of just aura about her almost Um, because she does feel very much like you say, like classic Hollywood type. Um, And I think that she kind of fits that role for a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, And in this movie, I thought that she was just, she stood out uh, against the rest of the cast. It it was strange. Like these, these guys would come in and out um, as her husbands or suitors or, hangers on or whatever and it was just like these it felt like a group of nameless faceless just people coming in and out of the movie
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah, like who's next yeah absolutely outside
0: of gerard Depardieu, i'm like hey there he is of course it's a french film we gotta get a (laughs) Depardieu. yeah i had
2: that moment too for sure
0: and as long as he's not taking his shirt off i'm cool (laughs) (laughs) um but, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I could definitely see why she was, uh, why she was awarded the Oscar. And I had to go back and, and look and see, well, who did she go up against, uh, that year to, to win the, the Oscar? And it was, you know, not the, not the, uh, killer's, uh, not the killer's row of, uh, of actresses, but she, you know, Ellen Page and Juno, Kate, B- Kate Blanchett for Elizabeth. Oh, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Laura Linney and the Savages and Julie Christie, you know, are not bad. Um, but, yeah, I, I this movie and, oh, what was the movie she had that came out last year? Uh, she gets laid off from her job. Two days, one night. Is that right? These two movies are the two that, that I. if anyone's going to ask me, like, what's a great go-to-yard performance? These are the two. Two days, one night is a far better movie. Right. It's a really good movie. Um, This one, yeah. Watch the performance. The movie is going to be rough, but... Uh,
2: Yeah, I thought
0: she was great. So actually it
2: brings up an interesting question to me, something I didn't really plan on asking you, but you brought up this idea that these people just kind of – these actors just kind of come in and out of the movie and you're like, oh, who is that? Who even cares? It's all about her. Do you (laughs) think – is that part of being in a biopic? Like should that be the way it is Is, because the focus is on Edith here? Um, Would it distract you if people came in and were these phenomenal character actors? Would it take away from her performance?
0: (laughs) I don't think it would at all. I mean, if you have two great actors going against each other, it makes for great moments. Um, I think that I I want to give the director the benefit of the out and say that maybe and maybe some of these actors are like household names in France, right? Quite I mean, possibly. Yeah. yeah, you have to say that Like caveat these we might sound dumb and be like oh these are these are the Brad Pitts of France for all my French
2: but, listeners out there I apologize all Dave, six of you I'm sure it's huge in France yeah I'm huge in France that's right um, Hasselhoff is but, Germany I have France that's obviously <laughs> um but
0: I, I want to give the director the benefit of the doubt and say maybe it was because to her I, I believe she had five marriages um and maybe it was to her that outside of Marcel, the boxer, we I don't even know that we really know anyone's names or spend a whole lot of time with him. Right. And maybe it was that that was her life, that, that her life was swirling around and that guys would just kind of come and go and she would just move on because her life was all about her career first. And that maybe that was in his thoughts that – we don't need to really identify so much with these gentlemen that we just they are they come in and out. But the focus is always on Mary on uh, Edith because the focus her focus was always
2: on herself. Right. Or at least it, I find it, I find her performance so interesting because it I think like you kind of mentioned this earlier, we were talking about direction, but her whole goal is to be entertaining like, her yes. whole life, because that's the that's the only time she's achieved any amount of love or adoration, is when she's entertained people. Like, going all the way back to when she was a child and she was singing on the streets with her father. Like, that was the only time that she was, in her mind, worth something. So she just carried that through for her whole life. So it makes sense that she wouldn't have these deep, deep relationships. I think Marcel is the only one, at least in the film, that she truly cared about. The rest of these people are just kind of hangers on and people to entertain constantly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it felt like she never, and I, I, this is kind of rough to say, but it felt like she never really loved anyone. Maybe outside of Marcel, you see her more in Marcel uh, momentarily, Um, but it really felt like because of what she went through as a child and how screwed up her formative years were being, I mean- going from a circus to living on the street to a brothel, all these things in, in her formative years and how that that aged her and almost, you know, she it felt like she was always looking for the acceptance of someone, a father figure somewhere, a mother, anything, that she was always willing to do whatever others wanted her to do, what fans wanted her to do, sing. Okay, I'll, I'll stand up right here and sing. Right. And you see her become a diva in the true sense of the word that we know today of right. like getting her way, doing things on her schedule, demanding things. Even at one point really when she really became successful,
2: I noticed she started speaking in the third person more. <laughs> that's the like, true, well, that's, that's the true level of it. fame right there. Like when you're, <laughs> when you don't even say I anymore, when no. you just refer to yourself by your name, you've hit a new level for sure.
0: Yeah. And, and so it it felt like she, never truly felt love. And then she kind of used the audience as a surrogate for oh, that love.
2: Yeah. yeah absolutely. And
0: I thought that part really came across and, you know, there were a couple of moments where you see her fighting to go back out on stage as her health is failing her. And, and she's, I have to go back out on stage. Um, I've got to try and collapsing on stage. And you see that she's willing to do anything for the audience, Yep, anything for the applause and to, and to, to get that, that rush of love and joy and stuff that comes from the crowd. I thought that part came through with her
2: really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's any other uh, actor in the film that stood out to you as a, as a memorable performance? I thought that the,
0: the lady who kind of early on the, uh, the lady working at the brothel that Mm. kind of took her on as a, as, as her child, I thought there was some pretty, there was a couple of powerful moments in there as as the young Edith is being ripped away from her. And you could yeah. really feel – I thought you could feel the love and between them and how she really – she wanted to be better because she had this Edith in her life. That she didn't want to um, turn tricks anymore in the brothel. She just kind of wanted to live in the brothel and take care of the girl right. and how – Edith's grandmother's like, you're not doing that. You're going to get to work. And I, 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 I thought she kind of stood out. And the, you could feel the pain as they were ripped apart. And I, I thought she stood out. Outside of that, there weren't a whole lot of performances. Surprisingly, I thought her father was
2: going to be a bigger part yeah. of this. You're part of her journey, and he's just really a delivery to- system to the brothel, like essentially, <laughs> like that's, that's it. And then put her on the street to sing with you, like that's yeah. like not not a lot of love there. I actually liked uh, Gerard Depardieu's performance in a in a small role. Like I think I think he's one of those actors that is best in small dosages. I think anytime he is a star of the film, I think by about thirty to forty five minutes, he kind of wears on you. The man has just such a personality that you're like, okay, I can't. I can't deal yeah, with this anymore. But he's, he's in the movie huge for. In many ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But I think he's in the movie for like 15 or 20 minutes and he's there for a very seminal moment to kind of give her her name. And I thought that that moment was pretty powerful, not just from what happens, but her performance and. And him being kind of this uh, our surrogate, the surrogate audience for Edith, and I thought yeah. that scene really, really worked too. But other than that, I think you're right. This is this is this is Edith's movie. This is Marion Cotillard's film, and it it shows all the way through. And I think it would have. I think it makes it a better film. I think you're right. If this becomes a movie that has some characters that come into it that are truly memorable, but I don't mm-hmm. think we really have that, especially once we get to Edith's adult life. Like they're all just, they're call, all kind of interchangeable. Like there's, there's the one character who is, uh, who going to write her music, uh, who's yeah. clearly yeah. important to her, but we don't get to know anything about her because we're so focused on Edith.
0: Yeah. I really like that scene where the, uh, the young soldier comes in and, and he's about to go to the front lines. He's like, I've got a song. And she's like, wait, stop everything in full diva mode. Stop. We're not doing anything. And her, <laughs> her manager's like, we can't do this. We have to go. And she's like, we do what Edith says. That's right. And and he's playing along. And, and you see her react to it. And like, yes. And you can see in, in those moments, I thought that the director did a really good job of showing that that the one love in her life was music. Yeah and that that is that music was everything to her music was more important well, yeah to i mean it's it's the one anything. thing
2: she can depend on music yes. doesn't leave and she, everyone else it's the one thing she does. had control over Yeah. exactly absolutely yeah. all right uh so let's jump to the script let's jump to the writing uh so i think we've talked i we in direction we talked a little bit about some of this as well because so much you never know like as far as especially with a nonlinear story how much is planned and how much they change in the in the editing room but one One thing that really kind of bothered me from the beginning of this film about the writing is, you know, in a lot of biopics, we have this stereotypical moment where we have we open the film with a dramatic moment late in the person's life, which is what we do here, where she essentially collapses on stage. But I think there is a giant mistake in the scene is that two minutes before that happens, we know it's already happened. Like we get it in the dialogue. So then when it happens, we're like, oh, yeah, I guess I was waiting for that. And I think that's a huge mistake. Like if you're going to have a dramatic moment have a fucking dramatic moment. Don't tell me, Hey, we're about to have a dramatic moment. Like that doesn't, that doesn't work for me. And especially from an American audience where I'm reading this, it's not just like I'm hearing it in the background. I think, Mm. I think you have a different experience when you're reading words rather than hearing them, because depending on how they're said, it can seem like a throwaway line. But if I'm reading it and it's one of the first lines of the film, I'm going to be like, Oh, something's happening here. So then when it finally happens, it's a good performance, her collapse, but I mm. I find myself not caring as much because one, we've already been told it's going to happen, and two, I've just been introduced to this character, and I don't know anything about Edith P- Piaf. So why exactly am I am I ingrained to this character?
0: That's a great point. Uh, yeah, that that is true. I can't. I, I don't know. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to <laughs> think of why that would be. Why that choice was made. Yeah, it is kind of the standard, the standard way of storytelling with biopics. So, like you say, is right to show that moment. We've seen that this year in several movies where you show uh, a big moment, and then eventually you come to it. And and a lot of times I have issues with that. A lot of times you lose the dramatic effect um, of that because you know, like, oh, okay, when we when we're getting close to that point, okay, I now I understand. There's not a lot of drama built up because I saw the end at the beginning.
2: Right, yeah, it made yeah. me think the movie it made me think of most like in a uh in a comparison where I think they did it better was uh Ben Kingsley's Gandhi movie, where the movie oh, opens yeah, yeah. opens with him being killed, and then you're like, oh well he must have he must have really angered some people I need to know this story, but there's nothing in that original scene that tells you I need to know this story, and I think that's what your setup for a biopic should be, especially if it's someone who is not terribly well-known. Like, I don't think we have that, uh, that worry when we talk later, when we're talking about Jackie coming out, because I think Mm -hmm. she's so much a part of our, our kind of cultural lexicon that everybody knows who Jackie O is. We don't need, you don't need to tell me why she's important. And maybe in France, (laughs) that's the case with Edith, Edith Piaf. Maybe like you hear her singing and you know, that's someone I care about right away. So this could be just coming from an American perspective again. It's interesting
0: because I was trying to get a perspective on who she was from from different people as we were planning this episode, and I'd actually talked to a couple of uh, relatives, older relatives, um, that were kind of you know into the music scene and were older than I, and one of them had mentioned like, oh yeah, I remember listening to some of her music. My mom would play it, and mm-hmm. I. I would listen to it and, and and some of her songs were were relatively big hits, I guess, if you were into that scene and knew her, but it was funny because a lot of people I talked to had never heard of her. Right. And, and, you know, like, wow. So how big was she? We see her come to America in this movie and I'm trying to gain a perspective on like, so was she a big hit when she came to this country does this, is this movie, does this movie, you know, are they trying to, um, to cross cultures with it or is this a movie made more or less for the French people a love story for one of their heroes? It's, and I kind of got the perspective that that's more what it was. Right. Was this is one of our own. Um, and you say Jackie, I mean, Jackie is so much a part of our cultural vernacular that you can
2: title the movie just Jackie
0: and everyone yep. knows who it is.
2: Yeah. exactly. You know, like, and, and I guess that's kind of what they did here. Because uh, the the American title is La Vie and Rose, but the French title is La Mom, uh, which was her nickname. So the maybe this is, you know, this is the French version of of Jackie. Like, like very in, well could be. In terms of just being known. I thought for me the best written scene uh, was the scene where she kind of gets – I mean, let's be real. She gets abused and trained how to truly sing, I guess, by by this guy like who – Finds her in a bar and slaps her and practically drags her back by her hair when she Mm. when she tries to leave. But I think the most important thing we get in that scene is that's where she becomes the Edith Pioff that everybody knows, you know, the the kind of strong stance, the hands, all that. And I thought that was it was it wasn't a very long scene, but the scene itself had an arc and you could see her learn and you could see her kind of become the famous person that she would be later on in her life.
0: Yeah, you took the exact scene that it was in my head. That's the one that stood out. Um, uh, You know, and when he told her, she's, "You're standing too rigid. Like, put your hands out." And she's like, "This feels weird." <laughs> like, I don't care. Keep doing it. And yeah, it it did feel like he took this the the little sparrow, and you see this confidence start to well up in her. Like, okay, and somebody believes in me, and that was kind of what came through too. Is like somebody is willing to to stand here and believe in me and push me, and then. Ultimately, when it comes to time for her first performance, and she, uh, you know, gets stage fright, she freaks out. And this, and this is the strong voice telling her, "Stand up. You can open this door. You right. gotta stand up." Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, that, that that part of it worked well for me.
2: It's it's really interesting because I, I think it would be very easy to write a scene where someone finally believes in her and doesn't treat her like shit because she's been treated like crap, like basically her whole life. Like, except maybe for a little bit with the scenes with Gerard Depardieu, but then he's like murdered and she's, and people think she was involved. I mean like all this stuff. So like, she hasn't had a good experience with someone who is teaching her, whether it be, you know, her mother, her father, her grandmother, all these people come in and out of her life. And this is the first person to teach her something and, and make her better so it'd be easy to make a scene where it's like isn't this nice but i love that it's like no we're gonna tell the truth about this like this is a terrible thing but it ends up with a good result for her professionally if not personally
0: you know if this was an american uh, movie i would have expected a lot more of the uh, the storytelling device where you have like the spinning newspapers <laughs> telling, yeah, you know, that, that old trope where, you know, when she comes to America, now we do have a newspaper where somebody's pointing at the front page of the paper, like Edith, this is important, but I think that's, that's kind of the American storytelling technique of flashing newspapers of Edith comes to America, huge success. Everyone loves her. You right. know, just that comes along. We didn't get that. I, that I was thinking that as she was coming to America, I'm like, this is where we get the spinning newspapers. <laughs> so, all right. I'm ready. <laughs> Yeah, this happens every time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's just a, it's a script that could have used a couple more hands on it to kind of really organize where the story was going and when we did the nonlinear storytelling, or even if we do. Like, is this a more interesting film if we just go from point A to point Z? You know, it actually might be a better movie if we didn't bounce back and forth i think the only reason nonlinear works here is like we have a finale that is a a song called no regrets and so it's really mm-hmm. all about her looking back at her life which is the perfect ending to this film so i get that's why we did it uh but i yeah. just think the way they chose to do it was kind of unfortunate
0: but that would still work like i would have preferred a chronological order in this and i'm not adverse to the to the nonlinear storytelling i'm if you do it right but it has to be shaped right and you have to you have to help your audience along a little bit yeah and filling in some holes i mean i don't mind leaping from things but at points i really felt lost and at points i really felt like i wasn't sure who was who and what was going on if you're gonna leap there better be a reason it shouldn't just be a
2: leap to leap and that's what this felt like
0: and it felt like yeah, there was a there was a lot of moments where like, OK, I'm st- I'm starting to get where this is. I'm starting to understand their motivation. And then we leap to a scene that doesn't necessarily it wasn't a nice transition. You're like, OK, so now we're now I'm again. I'm I, Somebody just took the map out of my hand again. I'm like, OK, now where am I? All right. And and I think a chronological order would have been much easier. And I think that you wouldn't have those huge gaps And you could still end with that, you know, obviously she passes and we come back and you know, you end with this beautiful performance and this beautiful song. I think it would have been a better movie for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. All right, uh, so let's talk about production value. So to me, there's kind of two things to talk about here. There's, of course, the the aging of Marion Cotillard, and there's the music. Those are the two things that I think really hit as far as production value. So let's start with the aging first. What did you think of the makeup? And, you know, we've talked about her performance uh, mm-hmm. as, as an older woman where she's 47 and looks about 70, and I thought mm-hmm. that was great. But what did you think of the actual kind of physical transformation that they gave her?
0: I actually thought it was really good. I'm a huge uh, critic of old age makeup. Yeah, uh, go watch Jay Edgar, and you can see the oh. worst of what old age makeup can look like, and that's just a travesty. <laughs> I thought this was—I thought this was pretty well done for her. Um, yeah. it's it's a tough thing to pull off to age somebody with practical effects, non-digital, and I thought that they—they they really made her look haggard towards the end. You could see life. Uh, had kind of beaten on her and you take someone who is who is i mean let's face it she's flawless
2: and you, you yeah know, you upset, you got i think that actually makes it more eyes. difficult to age her because you don't yeah. i mean not to be crass but you don't have the lines to work with because yeah. she has this kind of flawless face you don't even know like where the wrinkles are going to be where the lines are going to be like it's it's hard work and i think i think they did a great job with it like it it did have a moment when she first shows up in that at that age where it just strikes you and you're like, what is happening? Oh my God. It's like like
0: just the red hair. Right. Spinning. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, but once you kind of get over the shock of that, I think, I think the, the kind of production value of the old age makeup was pretty impressive. And, and I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain, trying to think of an example of a better, uh, old age makeup. And it's tough. This is pretty goddamn good. You know, yeah. there's plenty of bad ones. Oh, those are yeah. easy. Yes. <laughs> like, Oh God. <laughs> Um, so and then the other thing I think is the music, and I this should tell you how good the music is. Is I had to look up okay, is uh, is Marion Cotillard doing her own singing? Like that's I did the, first the same thing. thing, and she wasn't, she <laughs> was just lip syncing, they were using Edith Piaf's recordings. Uh, but it's her, and it's another another good thing for her performance is that it doesn't feel false. Like it feels oh. like she is really performing that music and she really has, of course, the, and I looked up some old pictures and old videos of her and she's got the stance down and the, the hand movements. Like it is, it is really, really impressive. And I think yeah. in a movie like this, it would be easy to overdo the music. And I think they use it just the right amount. Like, I think if they go any further, it almost becomes a Hollywood musical. <laughs> like if we put any more music in here, but if we put less, then we don't get how important music is to her. So I really appreciated that. It's funny. I did all the same
0: things. I I, I was online. I'm looking it up. Seeing, is is she actually singing? Cause it, it looks like she's emoting and I'm sure she yeah. was singing on set, but um, yeah, it, it, it looked really good it looked pretty spot on as far as uh, lining up her lip syncing and it and the voice felt like it wasn't a departure from the natural speaking voice right. that Marion was using it didn't feel jarring from one to the next, it felt like a natural transition, so you and I were uh, rightly fooled, you know, like, well, this could be. You know, maybe she just has an incredible
2: singing voice, and we don't know that either. Yeah, maybe she's perfect in every way. Like, that wouldn't (laughs) surprise me in the least. I'd be like, of course, of course you have a great singing voice, too.
0: (laughs) Yep, exactly. And so, yeah, I I thought it lined up really well, and, yeah, I kind of did a lot of the same things you did. I went on, I'm watching short little videos and looking at it, just trying to get the whole picture of who Edith really was right. to kind of compare and contrast to what was shown in this movie. And and yeah, I, I thought they did a really great job as far as that
2: part of it went. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move on to our favorite scenes. Uh, one of my favorite scenes actually uh, doesn't involve Marion Cotillard, uh, which uh, surprised me. And it's the... There was a scene not with her? There was. <laughs> and it was uh, when uh, Edith as a girl first sang on the streets, like she was kind of forced oh, to... My- that That version of la Marseillaise uh which was just it it works so well not only in the movie uh but for the character, like that passion that emotion that was coming through her singing, which was the first time you really saw emotion in young Edith, and really the only times you see emotion in older Edith is when she's performing or when you know or when Marcel dies. Those are really the only times, but that was such a stunning performance, and it. It felt enough like something a child singer could actually do. So it wasn't perfect, but it was really good. And you could see kind of the seeds of the talent there and the emotion Mm. there. And that really worked for me. And it was really interesting to kind of watch her father in that scene. Like this kind of like, okay, I'm glad this went well, but this envy because she's getting the adoration that he craves that he has like devoted his life to. So it's a really interestingly staged scene, too. Yeah, I agree. You could definitely see that
0: in him like, wait, I'm the performer. You're just performing because everyone asked you to. Right. You should not be up showing me I am the breadwinner.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, one of the scenes that I really enjoyed was kind of later in the movie, um, when she first um went with Marcel. Her and Marcel went out, he he took her out and they oh. went to this little That was a sweet little, scene. Yeah. It yeah, this little diner this little deli in uh in new york she's in new york and he takes her out and he gets her a, a corned beef sandwich and she like, what the fuck is this gobsmacked at what this thing is smelling it smells like a wet dog what is this thing it's beef you know and and you see her the diva in her come out like yep huh okay I guess this is an interesting place for you to take me. And then it cuts. Okay. America.
2: What is this? (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it cuts directly then to them in this beautiful, you know, she says, you said we were two, the, the only two Frenchies here in town and you were going to take me out. And this is what you give me. And, And then it cuts to them in this big, you know, this opulent French restaurant and whatever. And then, I don't know if it's whether she felt more at home with where she should be. She saw herself being, but then she started to try and break him down. It's uh-huh. you know, you don't have to be so formal with me after I forced you to <laughs> take me to this place. <laughs> right. You don't have to be so formal with me. We can just talk. And you could see that for the first time, really, she was going after someone right. and, and he was kind of the, the, the guy who was, he was quiet. He wasn't, Completely smitten with her, and was making her fight for him, and I, I, right. I, I kind of like those moments.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because it, it even ties into her kind of performative nature that we get through in this whole movie. Is now she's taking on another performance, which is not just entertaining someone and not expecting someone to be enthralled by her, but chasing someone and and not necessarily changing herself, but changing the way she presents herself in order yes. to attract this person, which I found really, really interesting. Um, my favorite scene overall in the movie though, and it's a scene that makes the whole movie worth it. Like we have, this movie has its faults for sure, as we've discussed, and it definitely has its good points. But that finale, that no regrets finale, like just, mm. you could have, you could have two hours and 18 minutes of utter shit. And if you have that performance, I'm happy I watched this movie. Cause it is, yes. I mean, it's gorgeous in sound. It's gorgeous in look. It really encapsulates everyone she, everything that she has been throughout the entire film and really gives you this interesting uh, insight into her character that no matter what she's experienced and all, all the terrible things, all the death, all the drug addiction, all the, you know, all the, all people assuming she's a murderer, like all these terrible things, but she doesn't have those regrets. She's, she wants to look back at her life as a life of love instead of a life of pain. And I thought that really worked on a bunch of different levels. I agree. I
0: can't say it any better that was it was really really well done, just beautiful, beautiful yeah.
2: end of the movie, yeah, the other scene I'm curious about your thoughts are are that kind of scene where she finds out uh Marcel has died in in the plane crash. What did you think of that? I was kind of let down by it hmm. um that
0: it it kind of came and went way too quickly and it felt like it didn't have a lot of immediately afterwards the immediate aftermath I didn't feel like had a lot of. Uh,
2: effect on her right yeah i think her reaction in the moment was tremendous uh yeah. and i like the lead up to it where she's kind of playing around and performing and everyone there knows mm-hmm. and she doesn't there's this eerie silence it's the one time that the people around her aren't entertained by her because they know yeah. they have to tell her something terrible but it's yeah. another it's another moment in the film that takes a leap after that moment you're like I, but i want to know how she dealt with this how did she that's what i how did she recover how did she just go back to her life when this is her one it in terms of the film it seems like her one true love like how did she change and we don't we don't get that which is unfortunate but i think her actual performance of course does not have a false note in it like she's just fantastic but again probably a fault of the script or the direction there
0: yeah you know and i as i was doing a little research on her i'd come across that so it was a bit of a spoiler for me that, you know, Marcel died in a plane crash. So OK, so the moment's building up. Like This has got to be it. This has got to be coming soon. Right. Um, And yeah, the impact was there and then it was quickly just dissipated and I right. was kind of left wanting. And and that's kind of a common note in this movie
2: is. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted a I wanted a little more for such a, lo- a, yeah.
0: a, a long movie.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, where did the time go? Yeah, I mean, maybe that says a lot about the performances that you constantly are wanting more from it because, like, it's mm. such, such an incredible performance. And it's interesting if you look at this in a meta way, like all these people, all this audience always <laughs> wants more from her and she wants to give it. So that comes through as well, even in the faults of the movie. So that's good. Yeah. um, So let's talk about the theme. Let's talk about fame a little bit. So I I find it interesting. One of the interesting things about this movie and its nonlinear storytelling is it starts off with her being famous and a total diva. So we have that in our heads for the beginning of the film. Uh, So how do you think did the movie deal well with the theme of fame? I thought it.
0: I, I don't think it was a tremendous uh, theme that they found, but I thought that they dealt well enough showing us that she was very much the diva. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we're, we live in quite the diva culture now that um, it felt like she was, she was a forebearer to what we have nowadays. You know, I, it left me kind of wondering if, if Edith in 2016 is uh, posting selfies and uh, <laughs> doing would all be the things hot on
2: Instagram for sure. That's
0: oh man. <laughs> um it it was interesting like i kind of said earlier watching her as she did kind of find this fame and she became this national treasure and she she found a way to fill a hole in her that she'd always kind of had right and that she did quickly adopt the the mentality of i'm something special I'm something, I have something these people want. And, you know, you see that a lot and it's, and it's an easy trap to fall into. You know, it's, that's why you see it so often in, in every walk of life, whether it be a sports figure or a, a singer or a politician or whoever, you get some instant gratification from being famous in any way, whether it's, I was. I was kicked off of the real world or whether it was, (laughs) I have a tremendous talent. That's an actual tangible talent that it's really easy to buy into your own hype. And as the fame starts to enwrap you, it's how you handle that fame. And I thought that they did a decent job of showing that, uh, you know, but, but I, I, again, I kind of wanted more.
2: Right. I think the one thing, I think the one thing they did well is I think there's, you know, I don't really have anything to back this up, but I think in a lot of ways fame uh will just accentuate your your talents and your faults. Uh, yes, because, very much so. Because you have your asshole, you're going to be a big asshole once right. you have power and fame. Exactly. So you have all those scenes um with with her kind of performing on the street as as a young woman and she's kind of a jerk and she's a drunk and she's kind of all over the place. She's kind of a hot mess at that point in her life. And if you look at her as she gets famous and those scenes where they're at the restaurant and she's spilling drinks and all that, none of that has changed. Just the reaction that people have to her has changed. Like, that that shit is cute because you're a millionaire and you can can give something to these people. But when you're living on the street and you're, you know, basically assaulting people, then it's it's not as cute. You know, we're we're not going to put up with that. So I think that was interesting to show. And I think it's been a while since I watched the movie – It's been about a week, but I think those scenes were close to back to back, like the scenes with her on the street and the scenes with her kind of entertaining as an adult at the dinner. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was interesting that they put those so close together to be like, this is still the same person. It's just the reaction that she's getting from everyone else. So I thought they dealt with that pretty well. That's why I'm trying.
0: As hard as I can not to become famous, because I don't think I could handle myself cranked up to 11 like that.
2: Well, I don't know, Jamison. Good luck with that. I mean, isn't fame just kind of it's going to happen for you? I mean, you Well, you can't the more avoid I'm it. on this show, obviously. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Triple digits of people will know who you are, sir. It's, 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 it's a big time. All right. Um uh, so the last thing we need to talk about I think is the movie that we're pairing this with as we've mentioned a couple times, which is Jackie, uh starring Natalie Portman. So, what are your expectations for Jackie? Are you excited about seeing this movie? I'm actually really
0: excited. Um, I like the subject matter. I love the actress. I think Natalie Portman's pretty great. Um, Yeah. And I've really been sold on the one trailer that I've seen over and over again. (laughs) You know, it it has, it has a bit of a, a miss. I mean, obviously the the character of Jackie and the, the Camelot theme that they seem to be going with this Camelot is mentioned about 50 times in the trailer. Yeah. And you know, (laughs) (laughs) and and it looks to me i mean it looks from the outside that this is what you had talked about where you just take one chunk of right a life and you focus on that and with her there's a lot of sections of her life you can focus on and i'm really interested in how they're going to do it and you know all things coming out are saying that you know oh she's she's amazing there's amazing performance blah blah the movie as a whole i've been trying to steer away from any kind of yeah. Spoilers as far as how it any, any reviews on it, so I don't really know anything about it. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean I'm excited too. I think this is the curse of Oscar season and the way things are done now is that, you know, movies are released uh much earlier, depending on where you are. Like if you happen yeah. to be rich or famous enough to go to all these festivals, <laughs> uh then you see then people have seen Jackie like three or four months ago. They just can't talk yeah, about it's it. Ridiculous. Yeah, which which sucks. Uh, which which in a lot of ways I think hurts movies because you get these, you get these new expectations, right? You see, like, oh, well, on Rotten Tomatoes it's a fucking ninety five percent or it's only a seventy percent. What's going on with that? So you instead of just walking in to see the movie, and that's everything that I've heard about this movie is that her performance is amazing and the movie not so much. Uh, so I'm still excited to see it, but it it definitely tempers uh those expectations but like you i'm a big natalie portman fan like i i will watch and enjoy her in bad movies uh so if she's in a good movie or a movie that is deemed to be good so far like i'm first in line i'm ready to see it especially because it's called jackie so you know the focus is going to be on her it's going to be i think a a tighter version of a movie like this, where mm-hmm. it's just focused on her, but it's also just focused. It seems like it's just focused on like what I- what happens right after JFK was shot. Like that right. seems like that's what we're focused on. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. And of course, it's getting a lot of kind of Oscar heat for for best actress for her. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and she's put in some great performance in her life, you know, one for Black Swan for good reason. So anytime yeah. she's in a movie that's getting that kind of Oscar hype, like I think you can pretty much much be guaranteed that it's not going to be a waste of a couple hours at the theater. So, so I'm excited for it too.
0: Natalie Portman really out. It feels like I've grown up watching her. I mean, yeah, Leon, yeah, Leon is one of my favorites. And yeah, it's like she's, she's come along. She's come along really well. And, uh, You know what? One of the things that I truly hate is these release schedules with movies. You know, as I... The Bane. (laughs) As as I do our our review show, and we look ahead at what's coming out, and we go, okay, we're gonna have this, we're gonna have this, we're gonna have this. No, you're not. And, you know, I go on to different (laughs) sites, Box Office Mojo, whatever, and they say, limited release. New York, LA only. It's gonna be in four screens this week. Now, Jackie has been one of these. And this time of year, it's really bad. Especially towards the end of the year when you have... It's, you know, a movie that is obviously Oscar Bait movie and it's shown in one screen in some dude's basement on uh, December thirty first <laughs> in order to make it Oscar eligible for this year, and yep. then we don't actually get it till the end of January. Yep. And Jackie's one of those I've been seeing like a month ago, New York LA only. And then four right.
2: screen literally four screens a few weeks ago. I'm like, this is ridiculous. That doesn't count. <laughs> Put it in the damn theaters so but, I can but see it. Thank goodness we get to see shit like Collateral Beauty. Like, like and, really? Dude, I got to go see Incarnate last week because it was the only new <laughs> movie
0: in theaters. And that piece of shit, I'm sitting there going, this, really, this is what I have to watch. Meanwhile, Jackie's out there in four screens and these other movies are right. in five screens.
2: It's ridiculous. Just put it out. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Uh, so before you head off, want you tell people one more time uh, how to reach you online. Sure, you can.
0: Uh, you can find all of my shows, uh, the the real films, the real reviews, the Movie Mojo Monthly. Even I host a radio show with my fourteen year old son. You can find links to all that stuff. Just follow me on Twitter at Jameson Rabbit, and uh, you can
2: find links to
0: all of those things that I. Do.
2: Alright, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The best way is to go on Twitter and follow me at PC Case Study and tell me what you like about the show and what you don't like about the show. We also have a Facebook group or you can email me at popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. But if you want to affect the show in a direct way, you can go to patreon.com. Slash pop culture case study. And there you can actually donate on a per episode basis and get some pretty cool rewards and support an independent podcast. So the next time you hear me, I will be doing an episode on Jackie. Uh, if all works out right, we're actually going to bring Jameson back, who you just heard on this episode, to talk about the new release as well. So you have that to look forward to. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch.
1: That's kind of
0: yeah. I, I look back on my the scores I give to the movies. You know, I'm going back and I kind of have this whole list, and I'm going through and I'm like, God, I gave that four and a half stars. Right, Was right. Was it just that I hadn't seen anything good in three weeks?
1: Because like, that is
0: no way that's a four and a half. You know, it's just ridiculous.
2: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Just desperate to give something a good score. Yeah. I just want to be happy. Like, just, <laughs> I just want to be positive, please. <laughs>